0: So you've been in federal courtrooms Mm -hmm. before, I've been in them before, but I've never been in one this big. And I think that's probably because where I was standing emotionally, it looks like it's twice as big as a gymnasium and the judge's bench looks like it's about 40 feet in the air. And, you know, the judge asked me, you know, have I made restitution to the government? I said, yes. Have I made restitution to Sam's employer? I say, yes. Uh, Do you have anything to say for yourself? Mm. And remember, behind me is Liz, uh, who is now uh, Father Mark Sites, now Bishop Mark Sites out in El Paso, and some other dear friends who are in the audience. And I can't remember exactly what I said, but I got to tell you, Cal, what I do remember was the feeling. Mm. And it was just unblinding shame
1: mm.
0: and guilt for what I had done. And then the judge said, okay, well, I've read all the letters that have been submitted on your behalf. And um, I want you to know that what you did okay, does not define you. You're going to pay for what you did, but it does not define you. And I remember that.
1: Hey everyone, this is Cal. And I just want to thank you for joining us here today. At Intentional Leader, we help leaders take the guesswork out of self-leadership, accelerate their personal growth, Fight a reactionary lifestyle and achieve their God given potential at home, at work, and in their communities. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Let's go make it count. All right, all right. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 83 of the Intentional Leader Podcast. I'm Cal, and I'm so thankful to have you with us today. If you're like me, you've been glued to either the TV or Twitter watching what's unfolding over in Ukraine. My, My prayers are with the Ukrainian people and with the leadership. I I just wanna say quickly, what an incredible display of leadership by President Zelensky and the Ukrainian people. Uh, It's amazing to watch how powerful a leader is in circumstances like that. Sacrificial, servant, lead by example type leadership and how that can literally inspire a country, it can inspire the world. It inspired me the other day, I was literally on on a run and it was getting that part of the run where it was hard and I wanted to start slow down. And I literally thought of President Zelensky. And I thought he wouldn't slow down. He can't slow down. The Ukrainian people can't slow down right now. And so I, it allowed me to push myself. But I just, I just want to take a moment to highlight. And I don't know when you'll be listening to this episode. Just to highlight this wonderful example of leadership. And it highlights how leadership is not complicated. It doesn't have to be complicated. It's hard. But it doesn't have to be complicated. It is often simple. It is leading by example. It is serving the people around you. It is having self-discipline. It's having courage. And I'm just so thankful for this display of leadership. And I continue to pray for the Ukrainian people. I hope you're doing well. I hope your families are well, especially those of you who are listening to this abroad. We have many listeners who are in Western and Eastern Europe, especially those in Eastern Europe. My prayers are with you and your families. I'm also really excited to bring you today's guest, Mike Bassett. Mike is an Army veteran and a civil litigation attorney who has practiced law for nearly four decades. He's the founder of the Bassett firm, a highly sought after national speaker, consultant, and mediator. He's also the host of the fantastic Legal Grounds podcast. If you want to go check that out, in fact, I was a guest on Mike's podcast. And he's the author of the amazing book, The Man in the Ditch A Redemption Story for Today and we dive into that story today on the episode. Before we jump in, I wanna let you know that we've been combing through some of our best interviews over the past few years, and we consolidated some of the best takeaways from those interviews into a 12-page PDF that outlines 12 ideas that we think will make you a better leader in 2022. We wanna give you this. It's, it's, I think, a wonderful way to distill these hour-plus long interviews. We, we took some of our best, most impactful, practical applications from those interviews and put it in this pdf this guide we want to give you this free guide just go check it out there's a link in the show notes to this episode or if you want to go to my website calwalters.me to check out these 12 ideas that will make you a better leader in this new year i guess it's still a new year even though it's march so i hope you'll go i hope you'll go check that out really excited for today's interview mike bassett shares with us a very vulnerable and difficult story in his life where he made some poor decisions that completely changed his life he thought he was going to go to prison he thought he might lose his law license and he shares his story of navigating that bumpy road dealing with his own personal shame and finding redemption on the other side this interview is a little different than many of the other interviews that i've done on this show i really tried to get into mike's story i I try to let him share his story and, and pull it out he wrote this wonderful book we don't cover the entire book but please stick with us as we cover some of the background towards the beginning of the interview, it's, it's relevant, I think, to fully understanding his, his story and the story of redemption. None of us are perfect, and we've all made bad decisions in life, and we've all had to, to a certain extent, climb out of a ditch in life. And I hope that this story encourages you, whether you're trying to avoid the next ditch by making wiser decisions, pull yourself out of a ditch that you're currently in, or continue on a path to overcoming shame. And experiencing redemption this episode is brought to you by higher echelon incorporated higher echelon is a leadership development and organizational consulting firm providing human capital and technology services to optimize performance Higher Echelon can help prepare you or your organization to meet the rapidly changing, complex, and often ambiguous requirements of today's world. They'll help you develop resilient and adaptive leaders. They'll help you with your processes, and they'll help you implement transformational technology solutions. Just go visit higherechelon.com to connect with Dr. Joe Ross and the amazing team over at Higher Echelon. Hey, if you enjoy this episode or if you have enjoyed some of our previous episodes, I hope you'll share it with people in your network. That's the best way for us to impact other leaders or impact new leaders. We especially have a heart for the next generation of leaders, those that are in high school or college. So I just wanna ask if you'll share this episode or a previous episode. Also, would you take a few minutes to go over to Apple Podcast? and rate or review this podcast. It takes a couple minutes and it really means a lot to me. I read all of those. It's always so encouraging to read from people who listen. It's a great way for me to connect with you and hear from you. Also, feel free to share with me guests that you'd like me to bring on the show or any feedback you have. Maybe there's something I do or maybe something I say that, that frustrates you or is not the best way Uh, you think to do things. So let me know that too. I'm trying to grow and get better as well as we we do this podcast. It's been a lot of fun for me, but I really want to connect with you and that's one way to do it. So without any further ado, please enjoy this conversation with Mike Bassett. I hope it leaves you encouraged and inspired. All right, Mike Bassett, welcome to the Intentional Leader Podcast. It's so fun to have you on today. Good morning, Cal. How are you, my friend? I am doing well, doing very well. And I'm really excited to have this conversation. I just uh, had an opportunity to read your book. And and I, it was like I was telling you off camera, I was so blessed by this. And I'm so, I mean, you and I, I knew you, I followed you on LinkedIn. We had that conversation on Legal Grounds, your podcast, which I really enjoyed. But getting to hear your story of the man in the ditch, a redemption story, really for all of us blessed me and I'm really excited for the, the people that are listening today to hear your story um, before we dive into it because and let me just tell the audience this story is powerful. you're gonna you're gonna get something out of it. it's going to impact you. it's gonna shape you. But before we do, Mike, let's start with telling a little bit about your background because I think this helps people understand you the way you think. So at nine years old, you're adopted by Gene yeah. and Herbie. Tell us about that. Tell us about kind of the circumstances around that. And then let's talk a little bit about Gene uh, and Herbie and how they shaped you.
0: Sure, so what, it was an interesting story. So my mom had me when she was a single mom, my dad had left before I was born. Uh, so she's about 40 or 41 years old and she's in Chicago and she knows nobody. And she moves down to El Paso and she goes to work for the El Paso phone company. And she's working with a woman by the name of Jean Bassett, who is a coworker, supervisor, something like that. And it becomes apparent that my biological mom, because of what was then called manic depression, I think now we probably call it bipolar disorder, simply was not able to care for a child. And so I began staying with Herbie and Jean uh, probably when I was about five and then came to a point where it was obvious my mom was not going to be able to watch me. So Herbie and Jean formally adopted me. Uh, when I was nine years old and that's where I grew up.
1: Now tell us about Herbie. He sounds like quite an interesting character.
0: You know, he is one of those people that if I was 10% of the man and the leader that he was, I would really be uh, something. So he is born and raised in Gretna, Florida. uh, Very, very poor. He and his brother grow up on a farm and at a very young age, he and his brother are left. They are deserted. The family moves away because of I think that the depression and other things going on, and he goes off to live with relatives. And I think at the age of 14 or 15 lies about his age uh, and enlists in the army simply as a way to get out of the cycle of poverty that he was living in and was a career military officer. Started out uh, as an enlisted man, went through OCS, retired as a major, fought in World War II and Korea, was a field artillery officer. Retired in El Paso out of Fort Bliss, and was just, I don't know, just an amazing, amazing guy. Uh, a lot of what I do and a lot of what I say, uh, good and bad, uh, is from the old man, he was just one of a kind, just one of a kind.
1: And you describe him in the books, the couple of things that stood out to me, you talk about how he just really appreciated everyone. And he made it, he taught you that you value every person from the janitor to the person in the high rise. And so there's that part of him, almost you might see as compassionate or soft, but then there's that other part of him that that's tenacious and just taught you about hard work. And I think you describe it, I might have this wrong, but it's just this combination of, of wisdom that you got from him and just tenacity, the ability to, to grind and hustle and work hard, but also to, to love people well. Which I, I just, I, I, it stood out to me that kind of that dichotomy of, of a person that has that ability to be to be both, to, to, to have that, that combination of as a leader and as a man. Which I just you thought know, that was we, really.
0: Well, yeah, like a lot of us, I mean, the old man was a mystery wrapped in an enigma. I mean, he, there was a lot of things that were just uh, opposite about him. It, on one hand, he was probably one of the most egalitarian people I'd ever met. Uh, you know, like I say in the book, we would have these ditch riders. Uh, that would come irrigate the the upper valley. And my old man was the only one that would sit outside and have lunch with him. Most of the other people didn't speak to them and probably just overlooked them and, and ignored them. And here's my old man sitting out there doing that. Um, he was also one of those people that every time you met somebody, you looked them in the eye and you shook your hand. And he always told me, he said, Michael, anytime you meet somebody, introduce yourself. Because while you may think they recognize you and know who you are, they likely don't. Mm -hmm. And so I always remember that. But then on the other side, Cal, he was just sometimes brutally honest in the way he viewed the world and really kind of taught me that life owes you nothing, Mm -hmm. Uh, that if you want something, you need to go out and get it, not dog eat dog, not stepping over people. But if you wanted something, the way to get it was hard work. And that was really instilled at me at a young age.
1: And it seems like you started on a little bit of an entrepreneurial journey early with that that mentality. And then you had this, you described this situation where Sterling, your brother, has something to say to you and in his own sterling way that kind of kind of helps you in that moment to maybe reset a little bit. Tell us about that.
0: Yeah. So it was probably 1980. 1981. I'm a sophomore or a junior in college at UTEP, and Sterling is home. He usually came home once or twice a year because uh, he was active duty at that point, and I think, I don't know, in 80. He may have been over in Germany. I'm not sure. Anyway, he's back home, uh, and we're at the, the house on 5071 Meadowlark that still stands, and we're in the small guest bathroom, and and then, and then they're talking to him, really kind of telling him how great I'm doing in college, and I'm in ROTC, and Really, I'm the kind of coolest thing that's going on. And he's brushing his teeth. And I remember he spits out the toothpaste and washes his mouth and says, when you do something outside of or fifty seventy one, come talk to me. And he just starts brushing his teeth. (laughs) I thought, well, hell, (laughs) I guess really I'm not that big a deal. Uh, So that was, I still remember that moment. And really what that told me was, this thing's much bigger out there than what you're doing right now and look bigger. And that really, that kind of stuck with me, obviously.
1: And what led you to go to law school? So we're going to get in the story a little bit. So you, you go to law school, tell, tell us about your motivation to go to law school in the first place.
0: So sophomore in high school, <clears throat> we're taking a government class, civics class. And one of the things we're studying is the judiciary. And there's going to be a mock trial and they're going to, uh, it's a murder case or yeah, it's a murder case, it's a criminal trait case, and I get chosen or picked or volunteered to be the defense lawyer. And so I really got into it. And there was a lawyer uh, who I think has now passed, I think his name was Richard Buck. And he was a very, very well known defense lawyer in El Paso. And I knew him from the El Paso Country Club. So I started picking his brain about what would you do about this? And how would you do this? And I was completely enthralled. And I thought, I could do this for a living, and that's where I think the seed was planted when I was a sophomore in high school.
1: So you go to law school, you do very well in law school. Not at first, (laughs) okay, not at first, Uh, but then you end up doing quite well. I think you said you ranked number twelve out of two hundred and some odd uh, students at your law school. And then tell us about what happens after law school. You, You, how do you start out as a lawyer?
0: So I was fortunate enough to um, be a teaching or a research assistant for Professor Vincent Johnson, who is still there at the law school and was one of my mentors. And he had been a judicial clerk when he graduated from law school. So with his help uh, and encouragement, I get on the law journal. And then he comes to me and says, "Have you thought about a clerkship, <clears throat> and I said, what are you talking about? I don't know what you're talking about. He goes, you know, you go clerk for a judge for a year after law school and it's really good. You get a lot of exposure and it looks good. It's good on your resume and it's good experience. I said, great, how do I do it? So he told me and I applied to a bunch of clerkships. And as the story goes in my life, I got a lot of rejections, but fortunately I went down and interviewed or at that point up and interviewed with the Supreme Court in Austin uh, and got a call that I was chosen to be. They were called briefing attorneys then, or I think they still are. So I was one of two lawyers that worked for uh, Justice Ted Robertson on the Supreme Court for a year. Mm. Fantastic job.
1: And then that gets you an opportunity to go and uh, work for a pretty large firm in Texas. Yeah. Um, So
0: when I was at the court, uh, you know, we would read appellate briefs all day. And I remember there was this law firm in Dallas called Coles and Thompson, and they did a lot of appellate work. So I read a lot of their appellate briefs. And I thought, man, these people really write well. And it just so happened that um, at the court towards in the spring, law firms would come interview the briefing attorneys to see if they wanted jobs. And Coles and Thompson came up and I interviewed with them and I came up here and I was fortunate enough and slipped through the cracks and they offered me a job. And it was just probably the best job for me a young lawyer could have. Was working at Coles and Thompson with some of the best lawyers in Texas.
1: And so let me let me preview this a little bit, because now we're going to get in specifically to to the book. But before we get into that, what what was your ultimate motivation for writing this book?
0: My ultimate motivation was to share with people my story and hopefully to encourage them to understand that in their brokenness really lies the ability for transformation and that our history is one that we do not hide and should not hide cal but we should use it to light a path for others because every one of us every one of us has at our ditch moments some deeper you know some with a lowercase d some with a capital d And it was really sort of, and like I've said before, a love letter to all those people out there who have found themselves in the ditch or a loved one in the ditch, or when they, at some point in the future, come in the ditch that it doesn't, it's not the end. It's not the end. It's a reset and a restart. And really is, is something that I think we all need to be reminded of every single day.
1: Mm. Absolutely. Well, tell us, tell us about, the ditch. Tell us about kind of the lead up and then how that eventually happened in your sure. life.
0: So I leave Coles and Thompson <clears throat> in 1992, and I joined a, a group of lawyers that had broken off from Coles and Thompson. And I'm over there and um, I get a call from an adjuster at a third party administrator, somebody who administers claims, says, listen, I've got a new trucking case with ABC trucking company. Can you handle it? Sure. Clear conflicts. And then I start doing the work and, and the director of, of risk management is a guy by the name of Sam, the name I used. And so Sam was my first contact. And so like many things, it started small, you know, a single case, a smaller case and just grew into bigger and bigger and bigger cases. And Sam was the risk manager for a holding company that had multiple trucking companies that ran all over the United States And if you've ever been in texas and i know you have you know we have a lot of freeways and with a lot of freeways comes a lot of trucks and with a lot of trucks comes a lot of truck accidents so we were able to do good work for sam and he uh, started to hire us not only in the dfw area but essentially all over the state so when another lawyer and i split off from that firm uh, in 1996 sam's business went with us and he you know continued to feed us business introduced us to other people in the trucking industry because that's the kind of guy he was. So he was a source of a lot of business for us when we
1: started our own firm in 96. And tell me, tell us a little bit about Sam. Sam sounded like quite a character. You know,
0: Sam, yeah, he is quite a character. He's one of those guys that has never, ever, ever met a stranger. And I know in your military career, you've run into people that You know, you will meet them at the officer's club or you meet them out of breakfast. And in 20 minutes, Mm -hmm. you know, you're talking very, you know, just gregarious. He was that kind of guy. He was very smart. in what he did, he knew risk. Uh, He knew it very, very well. He also knew to let his lawyers do their job. And he didn't micromanage, but he was very involved. And he was also one of those people that was big on, you know, uh, he was a lot about relationship. And so whenever he came in town, he always wanted to go to dinner. Uh, He always wanted to sit around the table and visit. He was one of those guys who was just incredibly inviting, and he knew everybody. And, you know, he was one of those guys you could go to and say, hey, listen, do you know anybody in such and such state that does X? And he'd say, yeah, I know a guy. Let me put you in touch with him. So he was very, very well connected in the transportation industry.
1: Did he get to know your family too? It sounds like he, he came to your house and would dine with you all. And
0: Yeah. I mean, I can count in my 34 years of practice. I'm thinking I've had two clients in my home hmm. and he was one of them. And we were living out in Waxhatchee. And I remember he came out and sat around our big kitchen table that we still have today. Uh, and broke bread with us, and uh, he was Catholic, and he went to Mass with my family. And so you have to think about that if you're somebody that's in a customer service business or relationship business, when you have a client that crosses over that line, both literal and figurative, and becomes a friend and Mm -hmm. dines with your family, that sort of takes it to a different level, Cal. Mm -hmm.
1: So then tell us what ultimately happened with Sam, this person who became a friend, really, and a client.
0: So Sam was also one of those guys that, you know, he obviously hired lawyers all over the country uh, because he needed lawyers to defend the trucking companies for whom he did the risk management. And in our business, you know, uh, oftentimes at the holidays, people will send gifts. You know, I don't know about you, where you are, but... Pre-pandemic, you could tell starting at about Thanksgiving through the end of the year, our kitchen was just a smorgasbord here at the office Mm -hmm. of food Mm -hmm. because everybody was sending (laughs) gifts. Well, you know, Sam is somebody who hires lawyers, so he received a lot of those. Uh, Sam also would get tickets all the time to the Super Bowl because he knew lawyers that had tickets and stuff like that. But that's just the way Sam was. And so I remember it was, I believe, um, 2001. I believe I get this big box in my office. I mean, big box of think three feet by three feet by three feet. And it's from Sam and I open it up and inside is all of this green Bay Packers swag, like signed jerseys, signed footballs, prints, color prints of, of the team, just really, really, really nice and thoughtful stuff, but not surprising. Given Sam. And so I called him. I said, Hey, man, I got this package. That is so nice of you. I really do appreciate that. The boys are going to love these footballs and these jerseys. That's really great. He's like, Hey, happy to do it. I'm glad you like it. It was a great game. We talked about the game. He said, I also put something in there for you. And I thought, Well, so I went through and kind of inventoried it again. And I said, No, Sam, this is all I got, unless one of the jerseys is for me. He goes, No, look in the bottom of the box. And sure enough, there was an envelope with my name on it, so I opened it up, and inside Cal are three checks. Now they are made payable from three of the different trucking companies for whom Sam did the risk management. Three trucking companies that we had represented or at that point may have represented on cases, but they were not on cases I was handling. I mean, I know the cases we handled, and none of them were on there, and. Even more odd, the checks were made payable to me. Hmm. You know, I, I don't know uh, how much folks know about the private practice of law, but in in larger firms, checks don't go to lawyers. Checks go to the finance department. I mean, I don't I don't know what to do with checks. So I said, hey, um, yeah, I got these checks, but but Sam, there's something wrong here because these three checks, these aren't cases we're we're handling. And the checks totaled just a little over 10,000 bucks. He said, no, I know. Um, I want you to put those checks, run them through your trust account. And um, I want you to give me 75% and you can keep 25%. I said, no, no, we're not going to do that. I'm not going to do that. He goes, no, he goes, all you got to do is just cash the checks and you take 25% and I'll take 75%. I said, Sam, I'm not going to do that. And I knew him well enough. And I knew that, you know, everybody's got their demons and vices. And I said, Sam, do you, do you need me to loan you 10,000 bucks? That's how close I thought we were, Cal. Mm-hmm. I mean, that I could say to him, <laughs> man, do you need me to loan you 10,000 bucks? Are you kind of in a bind somewhere? Yeah. He goes, no. I said, well, then I, I don't know what to do, man. Cause I'm, These aren't me, these aren't for me, and I'm I don't I'm not gonna catch it. And then his tone changed. It went from cajoling, hey, listen, this is what we're gonna do, buddy buddy, rah-rah, to just really, I guess the best way to describe the voice, and I know it's it's so contrived and cliche, but you remember in a few good men when Jack Nicholson is on the stand Mm -hmm. and Tom Cruise starts to push him. And the tone changes. Absolutely. That was Sam's tone. And he said, okay, well, here's what you're going to do. He goes, you're going to take those effing checks and you're going to cash them. And you're going to give me the money. And if you don't, I will tell everybody in the industry that you have lost it. And I will pull every bit of business I have
1: from your firm. Which would have been. About how much Ugh, we're I bet
0: you with with what he what he hired us on and what he referred us, my best guess is a half a million bucks a year. Maybe 40,000 40, bucks a month in revenue.
1: So what and, do you yeah, go ahead. Yeah.
0: No, yeah.
1: Well, I was just gonna ask, so you've you're having this conversation with a friend. Yeah. Uh, someone you perceive to be a friend, and you've got this long-standing relationship. He's also a client. what's going through your mind? Because it seems like initially you're like, hey, no, absolutely not. Then he changes his tone. Then he offers you this, hey, either this or this. What's going through your mind at that point?
0: So at that point in my mind, I am now six years old, Cal. This is where the story of Herbie and Gene comes in. I am now six years old and thinking that if I don't do what he wants me to do or is telling me to do, He will abandon me. And not only that, will crater or destroy what I've worked so hard to build. Uh, Not the right place to be, Cal. Not the, the logical place to be. But viscerally, that is exactly where I was at that moment.
1: So then tell us what happened after that.
0: So I cashed the checks. I gave him the money. And yeah, said, here, take it. Don't ever ask me to do this again. I'm done with this. And he never did. And we never spoke of it again. And we continued to do his work and, you know, he continued to send work and uh, naively. I thought that it was all uh, in the past.
1: You say that, but in the book, you talk about having this feeling maybe in, in a deeper part of your soul or in your mind that you might be found out. Mm-hmm. And then tell us about how that eventually does come to light.
0: Yeah. And I think our mind does very odd things to us. Um, I remember that. Who did I I hear it from Matthew Kelly or read it from somebody that essentially said, the minute you start a dialogue with the devil, you have lost. <laughs> And so I'm thinking, you know what, it's it's fine. It's water under the bridge. Nothing's going to happen. I didn't benefit from it. I didn't keep any money. It's okay. It's okay. It's okay. And then early 2002, I get a call from Sam who said that the FBI had come in and raided his offices uh, because I guess during the course of an audit uh, that is done, it was determined that Sam had... Uh, embezzled over as I understand it a million bucks by doing this thing he did with me with other lawyers around the country hmm. uh, to the extent is was told to me that he would send other lawyers checks for a hundred thousand or $200,000 and they were running them through their trust accounts and they were keeping some and giving him some. So he called to let me know that essentially the gig was up Uh and so i left my office that day um, never to return back to that office by the way um, and took the long long drive home uh, to tell liz that i had ruined our lives
1: and this was about a year after the cashing of the checks and giving the money to sam yeah about a year okay yeah and so you go home and and you're you, you find Liz at home, your wife. What do you say? You know, Cal,
0: there are some things that are still too raw to replay mm-hmm. um, word by word, but suffice it to say that I told her that I had made a huge mistake and that I had ruined our lives. That is the, that is the Reader's Digest version of the Cliff Notes of the G rated version of the conversation.
1: And Liz, I'll say I'm so impressed by her in the book, not just in this moment, but in other moments of the story. Uh, and I think it's such a great example of the power of a wonderful partner in life mm-hmm. who, when you need it the most, can speak truth into your life can give you that encouragement. I mean, she sounds like such a wonderful person and and woman and partner. Uh, Tell us how she reacted in that moment of you saying, (laughs) uh, I've ruined our life. So there's another scene
0: and this still sticks with me. And there's a scene in black Hawk down where they, the, the Rangers have, have uh, gone into this building and everything's just going wheels upside down on fire in the ditch. And Tom Sizemore plays like a sergeant mm. and he gets out of a Humvee and he is walking down the street uh, and in Mogadishu and there's bullets flying everywhere. And he is as calm as can be. And he's talking to somebody telling him to do something. He's just having a conversation. Like he's walking down the street. That was my wife that day. Mm. Okay. Um, she's like, well, okay, you need to hire a lawyer. So we are going to go see Martin Lenore. She knew of Martin because I had hired Martin many, many times for clients of mine Mm -hmm. who had had criminal problems that arose from civil lawsuits. And so here is this woman, Cal, uh, who was not a lawyer by training, but did the exact right thing and said, we need to go see a lawyer. (laughs) And within 30 minutes or more, we are on the way up to Dallas to go see Martin uh, and that was really, well, of the thousands of good, pieces of good advice my wife gave me along the way, that was one of the best.
1: And what did Martin think of your situation?
0: You know, I have come to really appreciate Martin and it and it helped me, you know, as lawyers, we are attorneys and counselors, you know, we're attorney and counselor at law. And there's another one, and that is advocate. We are an advocate for people. And I sat and explained to him what had happened. Uh, through the tears, and it was it was a pretty emotional deal. I told him all, and he didn't interrupt me, and he listened, and he listened, and he listened. I asked a few questions to clarify, and he said, "You know, you know what Sam did." And he and he called him an expletive. He goes, "He just extorted you. He blackmailed you. It's exactly what he did." And at that moment, I had I had not viewed it that way. And I say that, and I want to be very clear, Cal. I take full responsibility for the bad choices that I made, complete responsibility for those. But the way that Martin said it made me realize you know what? Maybe there's something to that. Maybe this is not all on me. And at that moment, I realized the power of words and the power of encouragement and the power of having somebody in your corner, Cal, can really make a difference to somebody who finds himself in the ditch. Uh, and that was just really powerful. And Martin was also smart enough. He goes, man, you're a mess. You need to go see a psychiatrist I know. So he called, talked to psychiatrist. And that day we went over to see uh, the psychiatrist uh, at Martin's direction.
1: And so you meet with the psychiatrist and tell us kind of, and I want people to go, I really, really encourage people that are listening to go and read this <laughs> book. It And, and it's, it's beautifully written too, Mike. Uh, it's it's very well written it's a quick read. it doesn't take long to read uh, and it, it, it is gripping. It is a story that even what you're getting here on the show is, is not the full picture and color of the story uh, but I, I want people to get a sense of what happened uh, because I think it's such a beautiful story of redemption. but tell us tell us how it played out so that you know we're, you, we've we've heard now this terrible moment. A year or so later after doing this, this deed uh, with Sam and yeah, and uh, but you, but you take ownership over it and then you go through this process of, of dealing with it. You go through this process of having to eat your, you know, take your medicine and and deal with it. Tell us a little bit about that. And then we'll get into the beauty of of the redemption and and the restoration and some of the the key lessons that I think all of us can take away from this.
0: And and I will. And before I do that, I want to give a shout out to a mutual friend of ours, Alex Davis, who was a very, played a very big part in getting this book in print Uh, without her and without her help. And and constant editing and encouragement and pushing and nagging. I, I said nagging, Alex, uh, <laughs> the book would have would have never come out. So a huge shout out goes out to her. So, you know, so I leave the psychiatrist's office and I'm on this heavy, you know, anti anxiety medication. And and this is just the beginning of a long road, uh, Cal, because I've got two things that are really facing me. One, I've got these criminal charges that I know are going to be forthcoming And two, I've got the state bar to deal with. I mean, these are two very separate things. And so I'm worried, am I going to prison for the rest of my life? And if I don't do that, am I still going to be able to practice law? So those are the two things that are really kind of um, just weighing on me. And so this all went down, uh, and it's important to know this. This all goes down about the 15th or 16th of January, 2002, uh, because of a people that just threw in and really helped me, one of whom is Jim Stanton, a dear friend of mine on February the 4th, 2002, the Bassett firm opened its doors. So, you know, within what, three weeks there is a law firm that is up and running and that starts the process of, you know, just putting one foot in front of the other at that point, not knowing what the future would hold Cal. I mean, if I was a betting man, on February the 4th, 2002, I would have put almost every bit of money I had against me (laughs) succeeding. I I would have. I was simply radioactive. And so, you know, the the criminal aspect takes a long time. Jim Burnham was a lawyer that Martin referred me to who was an incredible help with that. And so fast forward to, I believe, August of 2002. Yeah, August, September of 2002, Uh, We strike a deal with the federal government. I've got to go up north because that's where Sam's offices were located. And, you know, I plead guilty to one. And I'm going to say this is going to sound stupid for a lawyer. I don't remember what the count was, but there's one count of a federal offense I plead to. And we're up there now for the sentencing. So you've been in federal courtrooms Mm -hmm. before. I've been in them before, but I've never been in one this big. And I think that's probably because where I was standing emotionally, it looks like it's twice as big as a gymnasium. And the Mm. judge's bench looks like it's about 40 feet in the air. And, you know, the judge asked me, you know, have I made restitution to the government? I said, Yes. Have I made restitution to Sam's employer? I say, Yes. Uh, Do you have anything to say for yourself? Mm. And remember, behind me is Liz, uh, who is now uh, Father Mark Sites, now Bishop Mark Sites out in El Paso and some other dear friends who are in the audience. And I can't remember exactly what I said, but I got to tell you, Cal, what I do remember was the feeling. Mm. And it was just unblinding shame mm. and guilt for what I had done. And then the judge said, OK, well, I've read all the letters that have been submitted on your behalf. And um I want you to know that what you did okay, does not define you. You're going to pay for what you did, but it does not define you. And I remember that. Mm -hmm. And then he sentenced me to 90 days in a halfway house. Uh, So that would start on January the 11th or 12th of 2003. So from that date in August to January, I knew that I was going to go into a halfway house for 90 days. But see, the state bar thing wasn't done at that point. That's still looming. So great. Now I know that I've got to go to a halfway house for 90 days. The question is, do I go to the halfway house as a lawyer or an ex-lawyer? So maybe about a month later, the state bar grievance uh, committee meets. And so that is in a, a room that is the antithesis of the federal courtroom. It's a small, stuffy room that probably sat six people crowded and I think that there were 10 in there and so there's me there's Jim Burnham there's Martin there's my ex-law partner there's the general counsel for the company for whom Sam worked so there was not a lot of love in the room understandably from their perspective so we go in there's a hearing they ask me questions uh then we're done and we walk over to a Starbucks and Jim goes, well, all we can do now is just wait. I mean, there's really no timeline. We just wait. And I think it was about a month, 45 days later, Jim Burnham calls me and says, okay, I got the, I got the uh, word from the grievance committee. And so, Cal, you've tried a bunch of cases and I've tried a bunch of cases. You know that feeling when you're waiting a verdict and the mm-hmm. bailiff comes out or there's a, yep, you get a verdict. Okay. Multiply that by a thousand. <laughs> I said, "Well, because well, you got a public reprimand."
1: Hmm.
0: So now I knew that at least we had a fighting chance. So I go do my time in the halfway house. You know, just do my one day at a time, one day at a time, one day at a time, and then um, leave the halfway house on the Friday of uh, the weekend I was supposed to get out. And um, yeah, and then we continue to grow the firm. Uh, It's not easy. It's not that all of a sudden everything is now rainbows and unicorns. The struggle continues to be real and the grind probably gets even more intense because now I have got to rebuild a law practice and rebuild my reputation from really a self-induced flame out.
1: I want to get into some of these key lessons and some of the inner work that you've done since this, which I think is really beautiful. Uh, But one of the things that stood out to me is this, uh, there was this trickle of people from your previous firm who, despite knowing everything that had happened, made their way over to the Bassett firm. Mm -hmm. Tell us about some of those people and and what that meant to you.
0: Well, what it meant to me was that Again, like everything else, we learned so many of our lessons in life, Cal, from those around us, not so much with what they say, but what they do. And it was a lesson to me and what loyalty really looks like. These people knew me. They knew what I had done, and they chose to come over with me. You know, one of them that sticks out in my mind is, is still a dear, dear friend. And that's Stacey Cassidy. At this point, she is probably a two and a half year lawyer, maybe a three year lawyer. She'd been working with me for about a year or a year and a half. And I remember her coming over and saying, you know what? Uh, she goes, I talked to my dad, who was a Lutheran minister, and I visited with him and I kind of told him what was going on. And he said, Stacy, you got to go with who you trust. And she goes, and I trust you. So that was just a huge lift to know that mm. there were still people that thought enough about me. And then uh, a secretary from our, my old firm and a paralegal from my old firm came over and joined me. And with Liz, that was the original group of the Bassett firm. And that was just amazing that those people would come and join me. Again, Cal, if you were an outsider looking in and someone had said, place your bet, you'd have said, <laughs> I'm going to put, I'm going to put the Bassett firm to lose. Hmm.
1: You know, one of the One of the things that I have been learning about is wisdom and the formation of wisdom. And one of my favorite pastors, Tim Keller, describes wisdom as a path. And he refers to the the book of Proverbs. It's a path. It's not a door. You don't just walk through a door and you're a wise person. It's step by step by step along the path. And it takes time. There's no shortcuts to wisdom And often most of the, some of the most profound wisdom can come from struggle and from hardship. And one of the things that stood out to me about your story is that you embarked on these silent retreats where you started out for a weekend. And then now that's become a practice that you do every year, even it sounds like even for 10 days uh, straight of silence. So tell us a little bit about that practice and what that has meant to you and how that's helped to form you. Over the last ten years or so, I guess twenty yeah, decades. 20 years. Yeah,
0: yeah. <laughs> yeah. So there was a there was a um, a deacon at, at our church, Saint Catholic's, uh, Saint Joseph's Catholic Church in Waxahachie, Denver Crawley, who in two thousand three said, "You know, Mike, there's this Jesuit retreat house up on Lake Louisville up there, and they do silent retreats. It's something you want to look into." And I thought, "Huh." I knew of the Jesuits, but I didn't know much about them. And I'd never been on a, a silent retreat, but I thought, you know, probably a good idea. Uh, so I went up in early 2003, and it was a three-day retreat. You go there on Thursday in the evening, you have dinner and visit with everybody. Then you go into silence, and you have a talk on Thursday night. Then you have three talks on three or four talks on Saturday or Friday, three or four talks on Saturday, a talk in the morning on Sunday, then a mass, and then you leave. And, but the whole time you're in silence, you're eating in silence, you're in silence, maybe for 30 minutes a day, you're speaking with a priest and you've given all these questions and things to think about. And, you know, what it, what it allows Cal, is it just opens up this space that none of us have who are so overscheduled mm-hmm. and we're so burdened down with life's just taking care of families and stuff. And that's what it meant to me was to sit and to, have the luxury of looking at this beautiful lake for three hours, thinking about the passage in Mark's gospel where they're in the boat, just for three hours. Well, what a luxury that is. I mean, can you imagine sitting out on your back porch for three hours? I think maybe 25 minutes in, someone would come looking for you. Um, but out there, you had nothing but time. And it really was the beginning of a journey uh, of opening my eyes and helping me to learn of all of the growth that I needed to do and all of the blessings that I had.
1: One of the things I want to ask you about is how you've dealt with uh, maybe critics would be the right word or people that have not uh, given you that second chance. And Mm -hmm. and you, you mentioned that several times in the book about you know people who don't return your phone calls or you can just tell that there's this change of demeanor towards sure. them and, and the the reason I want you to talk about that is that I think we can all relate to that to a certain extent there there are people in our lives who are not our biggest cheerleaders uh, and sometimes it's direct and sometimes they have plenty of ammunition to to use and then sometimes it's just this feeling people get but how have you learn to deal with that. And you talk a little bit in the book about, you know, this Jesuit sense of, of, of indifference, but I'm just curious, what are some of the, the tools that you would offer to people for dealing with those people in their life that aren't their biggest cheerleaders?
0: Yeah. So, you know, to be fully transparent, when all of this went down, <clears throat> the law firm that I left, I want to say maybe it was 40 people or more. And so it was like all of a sudden losing <laughs> 40 people. I mean, I heard from none of them. And I'm and I'm not going to lie to you, that stung. And it stung a lot. And it took a lot of time to get over that. It was initially anger, but as I've learned in my life, anger is not anger is not the base emotion. And when you peel, when you peeled it back, it was loneliness and sadness. It was hurt. And so at first, Cal, I did not handle it well. I mean, there was a lot of how dare you! And I, you know, all that I did for you. But the more I've tried to learn and I've tried to grow, I've come to the point of, you know, I can't control what other people do or say. Doesn't mean that it doesn't make me sad, but that doesn't mean that I'm going to stay there in that sadness. As Father Joe would say, don't stay there long enough to get your mail. Just, you got to pass through it, sure. But now when somebody is not my greatest fan, or now when I've heard or people will say something to me directly, I kind of step back and think, huh, I wonder what's driving that in them. And who knows what it is. But the most important thing I can do is not be that person to somebody else in my life world. So it's a constant reminder to me that when somebody I know disappoints me or somebody I know falls in the ditch, that I don't want to be that person that turns on them. Now that doesn't mean not holding somebody accountable. Um, yeah. That still has to happen, but done with compassion. Um, you know, the, the road, this road we're on, this pilgrimage we're on is hard enough Cal, with just what we carry. I can't carry other people's baggage and that's kind of how I've learned to deal with it. I am st- still a work in progress. Some days I do really well with it. Some days I get wrapped around the axle.
1: hmm so I want to dig into in our remaining few minutes we have here. I want to share some of the wisdom that that you've gleaned. I, I want us to, I want us all to benefit as I have just reading this book with some some transferable principles or mantras or things that people can can apply to their life that you've learned the hard way. And, and obviously, we all have our own mess i mean i i have plenty of it in my life and i think you <laughs> describe I, I you describe one of the things i love about liz your wife and, and one of the things i so appreciate about my wife is she sees the ugliness she sees the mess and she still loves me mm-hmm. and that's that's just this such a beautiful example of the power of a, of a marriage mm-hmm. that's that's committed is hey here's me and all of my ugliness and yet yes. it's this unconditional love that you freely give. And it's a great example, I think, of the love that, that we have from, from God, that we, we don't mm-hmm. deserve it, but yet we get it every day. Um, yes. And so what are some, and, and you share at the end of the book and I, that you give eight different key lessons, gratitude, grace, redemption, compassion, loyalty, humility, tenacity, community. So it can be any of those or it can be some of the principles that maybe just come top of mind in how you lead differently based on this or how you walk differently how you see people differently anything that jumps out at you but give us some practical things that you have learned and some wisdom from this experience
0: so i think at a 30,000 foot view i think the the feeling And the verb that I try to embody now is one of love. We have got to love the people that work with us and that work for us and that are on our team. We have to love them and they have to know that we love them in a certain way. And, you know, the old me, the the pre-fall me was pretty judgmental, uh, pretty driven, very um, unsure And so I think that I masked it maybe with bravado. And now I realize that, Cal, I think the most strong thread in any relationship of any significance has got to be vulnerability. Mm -hmm. If people know that you don't hold yourself out as perfect, that you have scars, but that you are there for them. I think that that is really the foundation that we all need for any relationship in our life, whether it be in your family, in your workplace, with clients, people have got to know uh, that you're real and that you're vulnerable. I think that the older I get and the more I've traveled this path, and this has really come top of mind with the pandemic, is this concept of grace upon grace. As I can tell you, in the last 20 months, my friend, I have not been the best version of myself many, many times Mm -hmm. the way that we've practiced law, you know, what the pandemic has done to everybody has caused me to really not oftentimes fall short of what I expect of myself. But I have come to realize that I so welcome people that give me grace That now in my life world, what I try to do when someone doesn't get me something on time, when somebody doesn't uh, do what they've said to do, you know, when you get on the wrong Zoom call, when you get on the wrong conference call to say, it's okay, it'll all work out. Mm. Let's, you know, let's regroup. How did we get here? Let's make sure we don't do it again and move forward. And so that really is what has resonated with me after the book and really during this pandemic, is this concept of loving those around us. Because you know what? My old man used to say this all the time. He always had these sayings. And I thought, when he said them, I thought, oh, I just rolled my eyes. <laughs> but he would say, Michael, you can rent people's hands eight hours a day. He goes, what you want are their hearts. Mm. And, you know, that's what I hope with the people that I work with that they know that I care about them when they are struggling and that they can call me because Lord knows they have seen me when I have not been my best.
1: Hmm. Yeah, man, that's so good. And I, 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 I sense from you and from your book, and I'm sure this is something that your the people on your team sense is just a, a true humility, a humility that, that we, cause we can all put up a mask. And we have this kind of, as, as Brene Brown would describe it, we have this armor that we all wear. Mm-hmm. And the reality is that none of us, like zero of us are perfect. None. And all of us are a product of, of so many people who have helped lift us up through grace, through God's grace, through the grace mm-hmm. of people. Um, and so I think to me, humility, a lot of times is just, it's, it's having a full knowledge of my own imperfections. Mm -hmm. And then also the appreciation for how much grace God and others have shown me. And I am far from perfect hundred percent. Uh, but I I think to me, that's what I see in you and in this story, uh, and and the vulnerability to the willingness to share, this is such a gift. Uh, and you described to the, giving this speech, to 200 attorneys where you, Hmm. for the first time you tell the story to a, to a large group and that at the end of it, you get, get a standing ovation. Yeah. And I, I just want to thank you, Mike, uh, from, from me and from the listeners for writing this book and for sharing, sharing this story, because it's, it would have been easy to just hide this uh, to, to not want to share it certainly as publicly as you have, but this is your story that God ultimately has gifted you. And to your point, it's not, it's not to make light of the decisions, but it's to, to highlight the humanity in your experience and how we can all learn from that. And, and I'm just, I've been very blessed by it. So I, I really appreciate you taking the time to, to put this out and, and coming on the podcast today. Um, before, before we wrap up, I do want to ask you if you could just tell the the audience and the listeners, one, where where to find the book and then where to connect with you and your podcast and everything else you have going on. If you could just share that before we wrap it up.
0: Sure. And before I do that, I want to thank you, Cal, for having me on your podcast. Listen, I, I know the list of people that you have had on your podcast, many of whom are household names. And the fact that you allowed me to come on is humbling and I'm and I'm very grateful for that. So thank you for giving of your time.
1: No, my pleasure. The book,
0: uh, the book is on Amazon, The Man in the Ditch. Uh, it's on Barnes and Noble. I think it's on Target. I think if you Google it, you will you will find it. The website is themanintheditch.com Uh go on there if you want. There's a place to book for speaking engagements. Tell us a little bit about me the podcast that I'm fortunate enough to do that I had you on my program with. And I will tell you a funny story. I was talking to my wife last night and we were talking about what are you doing tomorrow and what's up? And um, we were visiting and I said, oh, remember, I'm on uh, Cal's podcast. tomorrow." she goes, Cal. I said, you know, Cal Walters, the guy that was on my podcast. I said, remember the guy we did the entire podcast and I didn't hit record? She goes, that, she goes, he was so kind to come back on and do the podcast again. And what she didn't say was because you were such an idiot and didn't hit the record.
1: Button. Oh, uh, I forgot about that, but I forgot see, that, that there was that moment.
0: That's because you're gracious. <laughs> well, uh, anyway, the podcast is called Legal Grounds, conversations on life, leadership, and law. And the guest list is not as long and illustrious as yours, but we've had a lot of fun people on there, you included, and mm. would welcome folks to listen
1: in. It's a great podcast. It's very soothing too. I love the idea because I am all about some coffee and just hanging out. And uh, it was neat to be able to have coffee with you this morning, Mike, and uh, just wish Thank you the you. best. I'm so excited. And real quick, you mentioned uh, Alex Davis, but tell us too, and I'd like to put links to to connect with her and what she's doing, but tell us a little bit more too about what she offers and uh, you know, the, the work that she was able to help you do on this book.
0: Yeah. Well, so when I decided that I wanted to write the book, I knew that I I didn't have the skill set to do it. I had the framework of the story. I mean, I had the chassis of the story, but I needed some help. So I put out feelers to my community and the people I know. And I'm like, Hey, listen, I'm thinking about writing a book. Do you know anybody that could help me? And you know, her name came up several times from mm-hmm. different people around the country. So she was on LinkedIn and I reached out to her and I called her and I still remember. I'm like, hey, Alex, you know, we message back and forth. I'm like, so I got this story uh, and I want to write a book. And she's like, "Okay," And I said, but I'm going to send you an audio, you know, because I've given the speech at another thing and it was on video. I said, Mm -hmm. I'm going to send you the video and you take a look at it. If you want to do it, fine. If you're like hard pass, I completely get it. You're not going to hurt my feelings. And about two days later, she messaged me back and goes, I'm in. Mm. And so, um, she is just amazing. And what she was able to do was to say, okay, let's zoom out and let's start with who you are. So the, you know, Herbie hot dogs and hustle uh, was (laughs) started and Mm -hmm. she was just such a great guide and just an excellent writer and the ability to look through and to capture people's voices. And to understand what I was trying to get forth, it's just not a story. Mm -hmm. You know, it's a story, I think, for all of us. So I can't uh, thank her enough. And let me tell you, if anybody out there is like, you know what? I want to write a book, but I don't exactly know what to do. Alex Davis is who I would call because she, I won't say she made it painless because that would be a lie, (laughs) but we got it done and we got it done early. Mm. So how about that for two lawyers working together, getting something done
1: ahead of schedule. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> Alex is a uh, law school classmate of mine and she's wonderful. And I'm, I'm, I'm excited to share that with people. And I'll put links to connect with her in the show notes this episode. Mike, it was a pleasure. Uh, let's please keep this conversation going. Please know that I am praying that this book and this message gets out to more and more people. I will do my part in, uh, in sharing it, not because of anything other than just, I I just really resonated with this story and it's a, a beautiful story of, of redemption and the power of grace and the power of community. And uh, really excited that you wrote the book and thanks for some, your time today.
0: Cal, thank you so much for having me on the program. I appreciate it, you have a good day as well.
1: Hey friends, I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Mike Bassett. I just wanna take a moment to thank you for being here today and thank you for being on this journey with me to grow as a leader. Again, I'm, I'm referencing back to President Zelensky and just thinking about, you. Ne- we never quite know what's gonna be demanded of us as leaders. We never know how much courage we're gonna have to have, how much ability, but we can always try to grow. We can always invest in our own self-leadership and our self-growth, and over time, we can become prepared to lead in any scenario. we we, we develop courage we develop resilience before it's needed in fact one of our intentional leader team members Wes cockroach just wrote a great blog about four ways that you can build resilience now so that you don't have to you don't have to wait When, when when you need it it's too late you need to build resilience now and i think mike bassett covered a lot of wonderful ways for us to overcome difficulty it's obviously it's best to try to avoid making bad decisions but we all make them none of us are immune from making poor decisions but we can learn from others we can learn from our own past mistakes we can look forward i, I do pray and i hope that any of you that are, that are listening to this you're thinking about maybe some of those moments in your own life where you experience the most shame and difficulty i do hope that you don't live in that i do, I do hope that you're able to forgive yourself and you're able to move past that and know that 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 worst moment of your life does not define you. You are not your worst moment or your worst decision, and you have so much to look forward to. And I am so encouraged by you being here, investing in yourself. Uh, So I hope you go make it a wonderful day. Focus on the future. Focus on all the wonderful things that you're gonna do, all the wonderful people that you're gonna impact moving forward. I am so grateful for you being a part of this community. I hope you go and make it a great day. Make it a great week. Love the people around you. I will continue to pray for the people of Ukraine. Remember that life is short, so let's go make it count.